As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. Hey everybody, Max Boltman here alongside Corey Prodman and Flow Hockey's Chris Peters for another episode of the Athletic Hockey Show's Prospect Series. We got a lot to get into today. We got the Calder check-in, we got a really full mailbag, but I want to bring it in here with a story that's really a favorite for everybody around here. Uh, Corey's annual Players I Was Wrong About. Uh, Technically, I guess it's prospects I was wrong about, but now they're players, and the point is that Corey was wrong. And uh, Corey, in all seriousness, I do think this is one of uh, your best articles every year because it, it isn't just a kind of check-in. It, it is a reflection of where you think you went wrong on certain players with how you ranked them. There was a couple of guys that I was actually surprised to see in here. If I remember right, I think you were still pretty positive on Mason McTavish at the time of his draft year. But he makes your list as, as a guy, I think, because of, of what he's become, uh, especially this year for the Anaheim Ducks. Yeah, correct. Dick. When going into the draft, I thought he was an excellent player. Obviously, everybody had saw the whatever he scored twenty nine goals as a sixteen year old in the OHL, and didn't you know play because of the COVID pause in his draft season. He played a couple of games, I think Switzerland second tier league, and then he goes to the U eighteen Worlds as one of the best players there. So obviously, he was a highly rated player. Uh, but I didn't have him rated at the same level as Owen Power or Matty Beniers going into the draft. And you fast forward now a few years, um, it comes. It's become very clear he should have been rated uh, in that tier. I think you can make a pretty reasonable discussion for Mason McTavish as the best player from that draft class right now. I still think those four first picks, which was Power, Veneers, McTavish, and Luke Hughes, are the top four players in some order. Depending on who you ask, the order might be different. But McTavish is absolutely in that conversation, might be at the very top of that conversation, uh, he's one of the best all-around young forwards in the NHL right now. Uh, and going into the draft, I did not see that. I had some mild skating concerns, which have proven to be not true. His skating is more than fine. It's an asset at the NHL level to go with the tremendous skill, the scoring ability, the competitiveness. He's a smart player. Uh, you know, he doesn't have, I think you saw those other three candidates. You saw power, you know, the 6'6 six, six frame. Veneers, the elite competitiveness, Luke Hughes, the elite, the elite skating. I don't think there's anything about McTavish's game that ever rose to that level, but everything about this player is either good to very good. It's interesting because with both McTavish and another player on this list, Matt Poitra, there is a mitigating factor here, right? And, and I wonder that both of you guys could probably speak to this. When you hear NHL teams now reflect back on those two really heavily affected COVID drafts, McTavish's draft year and Quattro's age 16 season, what kind of role did that play for teams, especially now that they have a little bit of hindsight in who they missed and who they hit? Yeah, I mean, particularly in McTavish, I mean, you know, he's playing in a league where you're just not typically scouting. You know, you're not, you're, he's that, that Swiss second tier league. You know, how do you judge that? You know, and I think that that's a real and obviously everybody was watching him also on video on uh, for the most part with that draft as well. So, you know, I think that that's absolutely, 
you know, where, where some of the, where some of the issues were. And, and, you know, I think for the guys that missed their 16 year old season, it's just, you know, it's less of a book, it's less of a track record and, and it's less of progression that you can track. That's actually, you know, that we're typically doing for the rest of the players that, that we, that we do track. But, um, I mean, I, I still think that that was, that was such a, a difficult year. I'm really glad that we did have the in-person under 18 worlds because that at least allowed us, but like you look at like Wyatt Johnston at that tournament, you know, if you would have judged off of that tournament, you wouldn't think that Wyatt Johnston was going to become what he is now in the NHL. So it's just, it's wild to see how we saw those types of things happen with these players. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you, you can't ignore that that had an impact in some way, but I still think that a lot of teams that, I mean, McTavish, was a guy that, you know, I had him low, too low as well. I had him seventh in the class at that point. You know, I had guys like like Kent Johnson and, and William Eklund ahead of him, um, you know, on my personal ranking. So, you know, that's that. And that was that was tough because, you know, we were looking at guys in, in different situations. And yeah, but it's 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 fascinating to, to look back on that year and just kind of see where where were some of those mistakes made. And and Corey, I wonder, too, like, you know, you talked about skating with McTavish and you know, I've always thought that skating off a of video can be really tricky, um, especially the kind of video that we were getting out of that Swiss League. Um, you know, but we fair. did get those live viewings too. So, um, but yeah, that's that's always interesting. I don't have issues scouting on skating on video personally, but I do think the quality definitely matters. You go to those lower tier leagues if you're trying yeah. to scout like high school on skating on video it can be it can be very challenging sometimes. For example, and I did see McTavish live as a 16 year old. Yeah. Obviously not as a 17-year-old until the tournament. Um, so those were obviously, again, COVID had some unique challenges, as you both were alluding to. It wasn't widespread in terms of like making massive errors all across the board with the OHL players, though. It, was, it wasn't like Brent Clark went in the fourth round or something like that. Uh, you, you definitely had a couple of significant cases that if maybe if they if – they, if, Wyatt Johnson had played a full draft season. And I was a I Wyatt Johnson fan. I had him rated right around where he went in that draft. But if he had played a full season, maybe he actually put up 80, 90 points and he shows that he's more than just this nice two-way center, but he has the elite offensive abilities too. I thought he had good offensive abilities going into the into his draft, but obviously he's shown far more than even than I thought, and probably even than Dallas probably thought they were getting at 20. Uh and in terms of if Quattro, maybe he has a little bit more of a runway. He develops more, and and his offense really pops in his draft season. And, and that's all possible. It's it's hard to say what would or wouldn't have happened, but you know you still saw most of the top Ontario players in those two years go in roughly the right order. But obviously, we now as time has gone by and we've started to see how those age groups have developed the highest error rate has definitely come out of Ontario relative to Quebec and Western Canada. Yeah. I did think it was interesting, Corey. I think you, you mentioned uh, the skating here with, with not sure if it was a misevaluation or, or it's something you made progress in. My recollection is the comps that were being thrown around on McTavish at that time were like a Ryan O'Reilly. And that tells me that a lot of people were in that same boat of what they saw, at least at that time. And there were some scouts I talked to at the time who didn't like his skating, and there were some scouts who thought it, was, it wasn't an issue. But kind of what Chris was getting at, very limited live viewings in the draft season. Um, you know, you could, I guess, whatever you saw at the U18, some people th- saw a good feat, some people didn't. Um, and, and that's where the debate ultimately came down to. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting when you kind of think of the runway and how players will change in their draft season. You know, I didn't hear anybody telling me this time last year that, you know, out of Kelowna, that Tijiginla could be a first round pick in this draft. I don't know whether he will or not, but he's definitely helped based on the progress he's made this season. Uh, there's plenty of other examples you can make in the course of a draft season of how guys progress or, or fall back. And when um, the case like McTavish, Johnson, especially Patra, that full runway of two uh, seasons in the CHL can really change the way uh, you view a player. Um, and, you know, we were you know, we were playing with limited data. That it still doesn't mean if the evaluation is way off and other people saw it, that means they saw something that you didn't. There were some people I talked to who really liked Poitra. There were some people I, loved, I talked to who loved McTavish. 
out. And so that other people could arrive at those conclusions means that you could have arrived at the same conclusions too. If nobody thought Quattro was good, you know, if he would have went in like the seventh round I, at that point, it's like, okay, like obviously this player developed incredibly well in the period of two years now that he's in the NHL. Uh, but it wasn't, they took him in the second round. Boston did, you know, so obviously they saw something really positive in this player to make that bet, especially given the player type and he didn't score a ton in his draft season. Another player who was kind of divisive on the, maybe not so much on strict sample, but maybe on how concentrated the sample was, was Jack Quinn. And he had that explosive draft year after not really being that high on anyone's radar coming into it. Uh, And obviously, a couple years later here, it looks like the people who believed were very right on Jack Quinn. Right. I mean, remember the Marco Rossi versus Jack Quinn debates? And those those were some very passionate debates at times. And obviously, you know, Quinn's been injured. So we haven't seen how it's been able to play this season in Buffalo. So it's a little, you know, I've done this article for a while. And sometimes you put players in this article and they come back the other way uh, yeah. shortly thereafter. It's happened more times than I'd like to admit. Uh, but I think in the case of Quinn, uh, given that I thought he'd be like the second, third line, you know, 2020 type of winger. Um, and now seeing what he did in Rochester two years after his draft, seeing what he did in Buffalo last year, just evaluating how dynamic his skill really is. Uh, I'm confident at this point thinking that he's going to be better than just a 2020 type of forward, I think, as he continues to develop, presuming he stays healthy. Uh, I was concerned at the time that he was just another pretty skilled, mediocre skating 6-0 winger. I see that player type all the time. Um, but where he was different is in the results. Uh, you know, this was a guy who was driving an elite, elite CHL team uh, and being a big reason uh, for why he was getting so many goals and points. It wasn't because of Marco Rossi. He was doing a lot of the heavy lifting too. very competitive player. Uh, and, and I and I probably was a little too harsh on him, given the team around him and his late birth date and the mediocre athleticism and not just appreciate just truly how skilled and intelligent this player was. It's interesting when we talk about kind of the, the results there and, and what they said about him, it can bite you too. And your yes. assessment of, of Samuel Fajamo kind of concludes, I didn't think anything about any one thing about his game was so special, but the production, the results were just there to the point that you bought in. Right. And uh, I actually had a couple of Kings fans in the comments say, you know, you're going to be wrong about being wrong on Fajamo. Look at how good he's <laughs> doing in the American League. And he's been very good in the American League for a number of years. He was very good in the SHL, very good for Sweden internationally. Uh, This is also a player that's been claimed on waivers twice this season and is now in the American League. Maybe he is an NHL player one day. Maybe he finds a way in. Uh, And I know the occasional scout who still does like this player, um, but I had him rated as like a – after his – I think his World Junior where he led the tournament in scoring, I think I rated him as one of the – you know top 10 to 15 wingers outside the NHL. And that obviously was wrong because he's not in the NHL three years later. And I don't know when he'll ever be in the NHL. And I still think he's a good skater. He has skill. He can score goals. He's a nice player. Uh, but there is definitely like a high-end traits in his game. Um, and uh, especially with wingers, it's it's very tough to make the NHL if you don't have something that you're special at or you're just, you're just a really good athlete in general. Um, because the the goal scoring winger with average size um, and average skating, uh, that is a very replaceable job, uh, and and they exist in the NHL, uh, but they exist I think until the team finds a better option or a cheaper option. Yeah, usually by right. the time you're you're ready to get paid, they're ready to be done. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's not the best line of work always. Um, although I, it's, I'd still take it, um, but. You talk about kind of the profile, and I think you could make a similar case about the small, skilled offensive defenseman. And so reading about Adam Boquist, you know, you, you kind of talk about the force that he was at the junior level and the production that, that it was in the OHL playoffs. And yet you go into the NHL and then you just see over and over again how much tougher it is to translate that into the hardest league in the world. It, it, that little stretch there, the 2017 draft, the 2018 draft, you saw such an emphasis in those drafts on skill and defensemen. 
you know, you had Bokefist, but you had in the same draft Quinn Hughes, obviously fantastic player, and Kale McCarr, obviously fantastic player. But you, you know, you saw, you know, uh, Ty Smith, Ryan Merkley, Nils Lunkfist, even Jacob Bernard Docker was was six zero when when in the first round. You saw um, in the two thousand seventeen draft, you saw Timothy Lilligren in the first round. Eric Brandstrom went high in the first round. It was really an uh, a lot of these smaller puck moving defenseman types uh, that went high in that two year stretch. It's interesting to see how a lot of that has aged over time. And I saw a couple of people make remarks in the comments of, of the piece comparing Adam Bokefist at the same age to Lane Hudson. And I'd be curious what you would think of that, Chris. Oh, man. Um, I just think I think Lane Hudson's a lot more skilled than Boquist ever was, and he's also a lot smarter than he ever was. Um, I think those are two of the mitigating factors. The question is, like, and that's, and that, I mean that that says a lot because Boquist was very skilled. I mean, the hands, uh, you know, he made some great plays with the puck. Um, he was able to make plays on the rush. You know, there was a lot there. Um, but I, the other thing that I think is a separating factor for Lane Hudson is the competitive ed- edge that he has. Even though he's small, he's he's a competitor. I mean, he's and I don't I've never watched a game of Adam Boquist saying this guy is a as a high end competitor, you know. And I think that 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 in the end I think is part of where you know what what kind of went wrong for him um, in, in part of it. And and really, you know, once once you get past the skill, is there anything else there? And you know, I think we, we, I mean, I had him very high as well. You know, I had him, I had him right behind Quinn Hughes, um, that year in that, in that draft. And, uh, you know, I just, yeah. And you think about guys like Noah Dobson and Evan Bouchard who were in the same class and you're like, ah, well, they're a lot better than, than Adam Boquist, but it's, it's interesting. He, and and it's interesting that you said kind of like in that era of, Hey, we're going to, we're going to go for some of that smaller skill. And then you do end up with a, a Quinn Hughes or a Kale McCarr. And that's a great thing. But, you know, as we've seen now, it's really started going the opposite direction. Um, the guys like Lane Hudson are going in the second round, you know, guys like, uh, you know, you still see a, the occasional guy like a Denton Matejchuk. And, 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 you know, there are certainly players that are going to, that are going to go um, high enough that aren't super big guys that, that, that can play with the puck very well. But, um, you know, this, I think we are going to continue see that, that, you know, those guys are going to continue to slide. Um, there's a higher risk factor unquestionably, you know, you think about guys like, you know, Axel Sandin Pelica last year, um, he's having, you know, he's having that great year or great start to the year production wise this year. But as Corey showed, you know, like guys like Fajimo and, and different, different players that you, 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 you got to be careful about how you look at the points because there is at some point, you know, the, the size thing, um, the different elements of their game that you might not be as high on. Once you get to the NHL level, that's a, the, the separation is very noticeable. Um, and I think for Boquist, the thing that I, I got concerned with very early on with him was his decision-making and his, what I thought he had was poise before I didn't see that as he progressed as the ice shrunk. And he also talked about, I remember very, uh, when he, when he was at London, he talked about how difficult the transition of the smaller ice surface was for him and how he, it, it had to, he had to like recalibrate. And I don't know that he never, ever necessarily got comfortable with that. Um, just in terms of time and space and things like that. It's funny you bring up Sandy Pelicans. I can't help reading these things sometimes through a Detroit lens because that's the team I cover on a daily basis. And I was trying to think what what distinguishes those two. I guess it's probably the shot and the compete, but it right. it it highlights that even in these you know these pro Sandy Pelica might be on pace to set a record for a defense from that age. But if they're all just power play goals from the circle, what which which of it's going to translate, and how much does that matter? I'd argue both. I get I the one part of Chris's analysis I disagreed with. I think. Bokefist, when he was 17 and 18, I thought had exceptional skill, exceptional hockey set, like Lane Hudson level for sure. And definitely better than Axel Sandin Pelica in terms yeah, of his puck. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Like, with that. Yeah, like he was a dynamo with the puck. Like, and probably, almost like, and as I talked about in the article, almost too offensive at times. He played like a forward. Um, but, like, you know, what he did in Sweden internationally, especially in the OHL offensively, was. 
you know, kind of like Lane, extremely impressive, record-breaking almost at times. Um, you know, but the competitiveness for me was always the biggest issue. Just you know, very yeah. indifferent and and uh, negative on the defensive side of the puck. Even though he is bigger than Lane, yeah. Um, you know, I think Lane's skating slightly better and then much more competitive. So that's would be the distinction there uh, for me. But it wouldn't surprise me if that is Lane's career. I think it will be better. But like, I think. And I think there are people in the NHL who think Lane's going to be like the second, third pair power play specialist. Mm -hmm. And I think until he's in the NHL or maybe if he goes to the worlds this year and plays really good against NHL uh, forwards, I think there's always going to be that question on him until, until there isn't. Yeah. It does seem like that, that player type, you have to really wait to have seen it happen before you're, you're confident in saying that it's going to happen, right? It's you, you can see as much as you want in college in the American league, even to some degree. You want oh, to see yeah. it in the NHL. I, I had a good conversation the other day with somebody about Eric Brandstrom. Remember how good Eric Brandstrom was oh, as a junior? Yeah. And then yeah. right, and then he went to the American League. He was like an all-star right away. I think it's like yep. a 19 or a 20-year-old. And it, it's it, to what Max was saying, it's a big jump going from yeah. there into the NHL. Man. Yeah, that brand. And I, I remember thinking, wow, you know what? The, Ottawa did pretty well to get Brandstrom in that deal for Mark Stone. And I was like, it actually became evident quickly how not true that was like that was <laughs> that was crazy to me that it just went south because i man i i loved brandstrom those the especially that world juniors that year um with with deline when they they went to the gold medal game and ended up losing to canada but boy there was some they, they were playing on the on the harbor center ice and in, in that small building just watching those two skate it was just man, they, they 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 did a lot a lot, a lot of damage in that tournament for sure yeah Awesome. That's great stuff, Corey. I always love that article. I know Chris uh, loves the opportunity to read I do too, but it, like, <laughs> it reminded me how wrong I was on the same exact players. Like this was, this was about as close as I, like I, there wasn't one guy that I could say, ha ha, I got you, Corey, on that one guy. So, uh, so I, this wasn't as an enjoyable experience for me, Max. Quite frankly. Yeah. Well, kudos, kudos to you, Corey. It, it is seriously, it, it takes uh, it, it takes something to do an article like this, and it uh, it does not go unnoticed. We're going to take a quick break right there. We'll finish showering Corey with love, and then we'll uh, we'll come back to you. We'll check in on the Calder race. Oh, you Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, we are back, and we are going to talk today about uh, it's kind of the quarter season point. I think I think it's a it's a good time to check in on the Calder Trophy race, and uh, maybe since the start of the year, it has not been the most climactic uh, race here. Connor Bedard expected to be a prohibitive favorite, and I would say at the quarter point, we've pretty we're pretty much on track for that to be where this is headed. Is that fair? It is, but he's not like running away with it to the point where there's no way anybody else will win it. I he's obviously been very impressive for Chicago, and he is the deserving favorite right now. Uh, you know, impact player on their team, uh, very dangerous offensively, get generates a lot of scoring chances. Uh, but I think there's some guys who are close, like you know Adam Fantilli. He's second in the in the NHL among rookies in, in shots, but Adam Fantilli is first. Probably has a little bit of bad puck luck there. I wouldn't be surprised me if Fantilli starts to get a, a stretch of them to go in for him here in, in the coming months. It makes it a little bit closer. Uh, if Leo Carlson starts playing consistent games, 
maybe he could get closer. Um, and then you have this this pack of defensemen who are playing really important roles on the teams that uh, yeah, usually these wars go to forwards, the pose of defensemen. But I, I think there's there's guys within striking distance of Bedard right now. Let's talk about some of those defensemen here because th- th- there's two that are putting up pretty gaudy numbers here, and that would be Luke Hughes and, and Pavel Minchikov. But there's a third in Brock Faber who – I know people are, are suspicious sometimes about time on ice as a stat, especially when it's for a team that's having the kind of season the Minnesota Wild are. But for Brock Faber to step in and play 23 minutes a night on a blue line that is not actually lacking that much, I'm quite impressed by that as well. Yeah, and I do. I'm a big time on ice believer. I mean, I think that what the way you're playing is going to dictate the amount of time you play. And, you know, we saw it in the playoffs last year. Brock Faber steps in. And because he's a good skater, because he's incredibly intelligent, because he's a a great competitor, he's able to make an impact pretty immediately. Um, You know, you look at all the things that are ailing the Minnesota Wild right now, and Brock Faber is not one of those things. Um, Brock Faber is is one of the solutions to what is is happening. And I I think, you know, with John Hines coming in, I don't think that his role is going to be changed very much. If anything, he might be used even more the way the way things are going. But what what I'd like to see what, what I like to see with guys like Brock Faber is you know just how simple they make the league look, and it's not that it's easy because they're obviously the team has been terrible. Um, but I've the games that I've watched the Wild, I've never had one where I'm like, wow, Brock Faber is just he's behind it. He's he's not he is always prepared, and I believe he's always just he, he plays he plays to his own identity. And doesn't try to do too many things. And I also think that some of the things that he's done offensively, the way that he's moved pucks, the way that he's exited the zone, the way that he's, you know, gotten transitional play. I I really like what I'm seeing. I also like the way that he's played in the offensive zone, which has never been necessarily the thing that we think about when we think about Brock Faber, who's always been, you know, one of those guys where it's like, oh man, he really, you know, the, the defensive side of the game is really where he excels. And, um, you know, those players are, are, He's not going to get the points to win the Calder, but what he is going to have is 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 a season that he's going to be able to build on to the point where this guy looks like he's a number one defenseman if he continues down this road. Now, he wouldn't be a number one defenseman everywhere, but with the Minnesota Wild, he's on that track, I feel like. Yeah, it's kind of like the Calder situation McAvoy was when he came into the league. He's just not right. going to have the offense to, to win that award. Uh, and I don't think Faber, even though there is some rhymes with the skating and the compete, I don't think he is of that caliber. I, I agree of, with you. Yeah. Of, yeah, player, but but there are enough rhymes there in the player type, and uh, to where you, yeah, I maybe he'll get some votes, uh, but probably not going to win the award unless something really strange happens in the coming months. Minchikov too, and both him and Luke Hughes have been have been impressive in playing big roles. But I think especially for Minchikov, who who was a 2022 draft pick, he's really soon here. And I guess Hughes, as a late birthday in 2021, nearly was as well. But uh, for Minchikov already to be playing the kind of role he is in in Anaheim, I mean, we just did the trade value rankings top 100. He's on that list. Uri Slavkovsky was not on that list. He has very quickly cemented himself as a really valuable piece for Anaheim. Yeah, when coming to the season, you saw Anaheim had a lot of really strong defense prospects. You know, he had Minchikov, he had Jackson Lakov, Tristan Leneau, Olin Zellweger. We'll see how these things work themselves out at camp. Obviously, Minchikov was the highest pick among them, and we've seen why. I mean, there's a you know a ton of really uh, desirable traits in this game between his skating, his tremendous skill. Uh, I think his offensive hockey sense has has really shown early on here in his NHL career, and he and He's done this, you know, without being so detrimental defensively that they don't have to play him. I think that was always the concern in junior as he played like a forward at time. Not too dissimilar from the Adam Bocas conversation we had earlier, but the difference between is he's this is a instead of a five, barely five eleven, this is a barely six foot two defenseman who I don't think uh has compete issues as much as he tries to create offense and, and activate into the offense. Uh and you know, he's running their power play now and uh, just looks like a, a true top defense prospect uh, who I think, you know, maybe, mo- you know, maybe more so even than a favorite type has a chance to be a legit number one defenseman in the NHL. Yeah. When you, when you watched him as a prospect, you saw, I don't think it was like recklessness. It was just really aggressiveness. And sometimes mm-hmm. 
maybe more than he needed to, but he would chase a big hit. He would chase a, I can break up this and take it the other way. And in that way, I think you could see some rhyme actually there with Luke Hughes, even maybe not the, the big hit, yeah. but they're, they're put pressing, right? They're, they're pushing. Yeah. The offense. I think maybe a little bit more natural puck mover than Luke, but doesn't have quite the skating uh, that Luke does, even though I think Mitch Kopp is a good skater. I think it's going to be really interesting in Anaheim. You know, it's a shame that yet again, Jamie Drysdale is hurt because I really wanted to see how the two of them would look on the same blue line consistently. And I'm sure Ducks fans do too. Yeah. And, and I would also say that this, you know, regardless of what happens in the standings this season, I, I feel like this, this entire duck season has been a net positive because of yep. what they've seen from their futures, from what they've seen from, from, from uh, Carlson, from Mitikov and, and Jackson Lacombe too, who's you know playing averaging nearly 20 minutes a night for them. Um, you know, and, and there's, there's, there's a lot of positives to kind of look at with, with those young guys taking that step. And, and obviously we talked about Mason McTavish earlier in the show as well. I mean, there's, there's so much to like about it, but man, Mintukov, I, I definitely, you know, have, have been impressed by him this year. He's tops among the defensemen and shots on goal as well with 36. And then the vast majority of his points have come in even strength. Um, you know, despite the fact that now he is getting more power play time and that, that he's, he's got an opportunity to, to make a, a significant impact on the advantage there. So, um, if you're a Ducks fan, I mean, it's just, it's, it's gotta be super exciting to see the, the, the litany of young talent that is, is already making an impact pretty quickly. And, and the one negative being Trevor Zegers' start to the season. Oh, although I think yeah. Duck fans are hoping that it was, that was just the injury, uh, that was at least in part causing, uh, his underwhelming start. Yeah. What do you guys make really quick of the way that they're approaching things with Leo Carlson? I, I think Chris maybe alluded to it earlier on um, in, in this. I mean, it, it isn't maybe the same throw you right into the fire approach that we see with like a Bedard. I find it fascinating for one, because we don't see it very often with top picks and maybe we should on it, you know, like, and there have been how many, you know, should we have seen that with, with Slavkovsky, Lafreniere, you know, any, any of those guys that we've said, you know, Hey, this isn't really clicking. Do we just keep putting it in there? And and this is something like to stick to your guns too, even when you know Leo Carlson has a hat trick in a game and you're just like, hey, you know, like we're sticking to this plan. This is the, you know, we don't want to we don't want to play any two games this year. And maybe you build and maybe things shift as you, as he gets better. But I, I just think that the discipline to remain patient um with the process. And then also, you know, at the beginning of the season when they're competing and it's like, oh, hey, this is there's something happening here in Anaheim. We're starting to get rolling a little bit. They just stuck to it. And, and I think that that level of patience doesn't exist, particularly for top picks, for guys that are top three picks in the draft. Those guys don't necessarily get that level of patience applied to them when maybe when a lot more should. Um, and I just, it, 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 I'm, I want to see how this is going to play out over the course of the full season. Um, as long as everybody understands what, like what it is. And if there are certain benchmarks that are supposed to be hit, um, then I think it's, it's, it's an, it's a positive for them, but you know, even in limited minutes, he's making an impact. So the lack of consistency of playing time or, or, or sitting out a few games has not impacted him negatively in any visible way at this point. Um, but I find it fascinating. Just one thing that I think is important is I think it's very different depending on where you come from. I probably wouldn't do this with a top pick coming out of the CHL who are used to 65 game seasons plus extended playoffs. But when you come from, particularly from like, you know, the European countries like, like Sweden, where their seasons can be 40 games sometimes. If you look at the amount of games they play even before they reach the SHL or the J twenties, those J 18 or those, those, 14-year-old, 15-year-old season, they might play 20 games sometimes in a, in a full year. That's a big jump going from 30, 40, 50 games to 82. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, U.S. college, maybe even some some resemblances of that too. So I think that's a, a distinction as well. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I think always factors into to the Calder race, especially on, on these candidates who are in the top 10 for scoring is what's your, what, what's your role on a team and how the team do. So I, I think when we look at, we talked about Matt Poitra in the last segment a lot, he's in a big role for one of the best teams in the NHL at, at such a young age. I also think you can make a case for Logan Cooley on those grounds, just with it in Arizona team that they're around a playoff spot. If, if they can continue that throughout the whole year with him playing the role he is and producing the way he is, I probably like we talked about, 
uh, in an earlier case with, with Faber, probably not going to win the award, but certainly can get you some votes there and get your name around it. I mean, I think he's, I wouldn't rule out Cooley winning the award just quite yet. I think, like I said, I think he's one of those guys in striking range. We'll see how his season goes. He's had some times this year where he's looked, you know, really, really good. And then he's had a couple of game stretches where he's, you know, he looks like a teenager in the NHL and, and, it, and the physicality can wear on him a little bit. Uh, but, you know, he's, you know, you know, looks like a guy who's been an important part of their power play, uh, helping their team in a, in a notable role. Uh, you know, they're not feeding him too many minutes early on, which you like to see. Uh, you know, I will see how the rest of his season goes. Likely not going to the World Juniors. So, you know, trying to help Arizona continue to make a playoff push here. Um, and if they, I don't even, even if they don't make it, I think even if they come close, frankly, like if they're in a race until March, never mind April, I, I, he will definitely get serious consideration. Yeah. Yeah. I think one one other thing about Cooley too. Looking back, he had a he had a bit of a similar trajectory last season in his first year of college hockey too, where Minnesota had a few games that were kind of like you know easy gimme games at the beginning of the season, and then they started playing some tougher opponents, and the points weren't coming for Cooley, and he just developed, kept going, and then he ended up being one of the, his second half of the season was just absolutely off the charts, ended up being one of the highest scoring freshmen you know that we've had in in college hockey. He's one of those players that, and I just feel like this is this has always been the case with him. Um, he learns pretty quickly, and he and he adjusts to that because there are a lot of, like Corey said, there are a lot of times where he does the stuff at the offensive blue line, and you're just like, why? Are, like you can't do that at this level. But but and it was the same thing at college hockey. He was trying to skate through five guys all the time, and then he he adjusted. And so I'm I'm fascinated to see, especially as as long as Arizona remains competitive how much he impacts that because I do think the best is yet to come for him this season. And like Corey said, I wouldn't rule him out being a contender because I do think that there's a bit of a build that can happen with him. And, and like Corey said, like we, we do not expect to see him at the world junior championship. And if you're Arizona, you need him now, uh, which is a great position for him to be in. And it's another example of saying, Hey, this is a guy that deserves our consideration because he's going to be a big part of, of a team that is probably exceeding expectations to a certain extent this season. Remember when there was a stretch where we thought he was going to go back to college again this season? Like, I, I know. <laughs> I mean, up until August, we were like, hey. And, you know, like the first indication was when he said, I'm not going to the, the World Junior Camp in the summer. Like, mm, what's going to happen? And that was pretty much like the first indication that uh, he's not coming. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One more name I wanted to hit just really on the good story frontier is the name of Corey. I know you've been passionate about for a long time. I think he was one of your dark horses, Dmitry Voronkov in, in Columbus. And, you know, Aaron Portson had an unbelievable story uh, on Tuesday about this. And Voronkov was battling homesickness. He was considering going back to Russia and he ends up sticking it out. Uh, he's staying here. He scores the other night. And, and what I was shocked to find out was the first time the, the four Russian players ever scored in the same game. Uh, so that's a cool little historical note there. But he's, he's having a really nice season, 10 points in 17 games. Uh, you know, the, the season's been what it is in Columbus. But as bright spots go, he has been certainly one of their biggest. Yep. You know, big physical forward, skilled. Uh, he's been playing on the second line, I think, at times with Adam Fantilli. Uh, and Fantilli's, the, you know, I think his season's been shaken. When I've watched Fantilli's year, I know the production hasn't been, you know, say what Leo Carlson's per game production has been. When I've watched Fantilli this, this season, I've generally been very impressed uh, by him. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, everybody was talking about that assist the other day that he had on the, on the Patrick Line goal. Uh, but I, I I think, you know, if those two stay together, I think they've had Marchenko there at times. I know they've had to mix things up in Columbus a lot because of all the losing. Um, but I, I think those two, their their physicality and their, uh, and, and their skill can mesh well together. And I do think... Uh, I, th- I think Fantilli will score a lot more before the season is over. All right, we're going to take a quick break right there. We'll come back with a minute. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. 
I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, we are back, and it is mailbag time. We're going to go through a few of these here. Lots of good ones here. And and the first one, uh, Corey, is for you from Chris Lindsay, who wants to know your thoughts on the development of William Eklund now that he's made the NHL. Uh, Obviously, evaluating anybody in San Jose this season uh, comes with his challenges as a a team that uh, has struggled, often doesn't have the puck. Uh, It makes it a little more difficult to evaluate the players they have there, but Eklund is on their top power play. He is playing an important role on that team. You see the skating and the skill he has, and that he can create offense in the hard areas of the ice. Um, you see kind of where his offense is coming from. It is coming from more of the interior of the offensive zone, which you like seeing for a smaller player. You know, when we looked at Eklund coming into his draft year, uh, I saw a really dynamic winger yes he was small but the skating the skill the offensive hockey sense all looked outstanding and it looked like he could be a difference maker at that size you fast forward a few years i still think a lot of that is true i do wonder if the high side offensively is ever going to be like truly high end or whether this is just more on a quality top six winger that we are talking about you know the production this year hasn't been amazing get off context the team around him but he's part of the team playing a big role um, so I can, I do like him. I like his progress since he's come to North America. I think he's a very good player. I just don't know in terms of the Sharks rebuild, if he's going to be like a huge difference maker, I still think at this current moment, a huge part of the rebuild is the future picks, you know, probably going to have a very high pick this year. And obviously the progress of Will Smith, who has been excellent lately, mind you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Chris Carson Bullock wants to know how you see Cutter Gauthier's goal scoring translating to the NHL level. Is there a 40 goal top power play potential for a Flyers team that hasn't had that guy since Lindros? Just for context here, I was just pulling up Cutter Gauthier's stats here. 12 goals in 14 games so far this year for Boston College. Yeah, he's he's been awesome. And you, you think about Boston College has the big line with Will Smith, who we just mentioned, with Ryan Leonard and Gabe Perot. And then basically Cutter Gauthier is... It's him. Like I, I like that to, to not take away anything from Boston College's second line. It's good, good, good college players. But we're talking about you know three first round draft picks and then him on the next and the next group. And I do think that Boston College is a lot tougher to match up against because they have those lines and you there's there's weapons everywhere. But you know what I've seen from Kadergoche this year is actually what we saw kind of in the summer as well, and also. Um, at the World Championship last year. I thought the World Championship last year was a difference-making tournament for Cutter Gauthier in that he proved he could play with men. He actually played better at that tournament, I thought. Even though he had more points at the World Juniors, I thought he played better at the world at the men's worlds than he did at the World Juniors that 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 year earlier. And he's built off of that. And then he he came into the summer camp and he was a dominant player at the U.S. summer camp as well, where he was just 
bullying people. He was out skating him. So the re why I think his, his goal scoring will translate to the NHL is less because of the elite shot, which I think is he's got a great shot, but it's his ability to get to the interior. And he's shown that more and more and more. He can score from the outside, but he gets to the interior, scores a lot of goals towards the net, um, can score from distance. But uh, the strength that he plays with, he's added more power to his game. Um, he has good pace. Like all those things are coming together. The question is going to be at the NHL level, is he a center or is he a wing? And he's a center at Boston College. There's a very strong possibility at the World Juniors. He's going to play on the wing. Um, it's, it's, I almost call it likely that he'll play on the wing. Um, just And that might be because they have you know, James Higgins, Will Smith, um, Frankie Nazar, you know, a couple guys that they can play down the middle that, that they trust. Um, but for me, you know, I think it's going to come down to to him being, you know, if, if he's on the wing, I do think that that is going to increase his goal potential. I like him better on the wing from an offensive perspective. But what I've seen this year is a player that is, is, is complete, has become more a complete player, more dedicated to the defensive side of the game. Um, and, and is just physically more athletic and stronger than a lot of the players that he's playing against, um, which at the college level at his age is pretty impressive. Um, so I, I, I think that cutter go like in terms of pure goal talent, like 40 goals, that's, it's a big number. It's, and it, it takes a special goal scorer to do that. Um, but I, I think we're talking about a guy that I, I view as a consistent 30 goal kind of player at the NHL level, which if you can get a consistent 30 goal player, that's pretty impressive as well. So I, I think that he's a, he's, he's a pretty darn good player. And in this season, he's taken the step. He was pretty, he was good last year. He's what even better this year. He's, he is now four in 14 games. He's four goals away from matching his goal total from his freshman season. So, uh, not bad. All right, Corey, next one's for you. We went blues wants to know your thoughts on Dalibor Dvorsky's game, uh, after his move to North America, obviously was struggling in the SHL for a last place team there, but since coming over to Sudbury, I think he's got 22 points in 15 games now. Yep, looks a little bit better now in Sudbury. Uh, it was helped turn their season around. Now you add him onto that power play with Quentin Musty and David Goyette, and uh, it's, a, it's a lot of skill there. And I've watched two or three games of his in the OHL, and you see the skill, the hockey sense stand out. Uh, you also see why he might have struggled in the SHL. The you know his skating never an asset. Uh, you know, so they'd be I'm sure when he was playing against men, the pace there was probably a little tougher. Him as an 18 year old, uh, he looks you know it's like look. You know, quite good in the OHL. Uh, World Juniors will be a big test for him coming up here. Because uh, I think if you want him to be uh, a legit top six forward, never mind a top six center in the NHL, he's going to need to prove with those feet that he can play against faster players and still have success. He's going to play against some really fast players on Team Sweden, Team USA, who's in his group, and Team Canada. And so I'll be curious to see at that tournament, can he elevate – what will be a quite talented team Slovakia relative to a typical year uh, to potentially an upset or two. All right. Uh, this one's, I guess we can kind of take as a group here, but Patrick, cause it's such a big question. Patrick McConnell wants to know, how would you fix the Ottawa senators? And I guess my, my first question here, and I'll, I'll direct this to you, Chris is are the Ottawa senators broken because it's been a slower start to the season in the standings for that. But are you seeing things night to night that have you worried about Ottawa? Um, yes and no. Like I, I definitely like there, there, are, there are so many pieces there. I mean, I mean, I think that the, the foundation is there. Um, obviously with, you know, you've got a transition in ownership, you've got now a transition in management. I, you know, at some point you wonder, will there also be a transition in coaching staff and, and how does that dictate the good news is. You've got core pieces in your system. You've got, you know, you've got a Tim Stutzla, a, a Jake Sanderson, you know, Brady Kachuk. You've, you've got pieces. Uh, and so are they, are they broken? No, I just think that they're not, maybe not as far as we expected them to be. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't have super high expectations for the senators this year. Um, but what, what I do see is, is a team that, you know, they're, they they had the Pinto situation. They've had all these different things, and and so I think this is a, an organization that needs a reset culturally, which I guess comes with a new ownership, um, and that is something that I think 
really only mends with time because I don't really have, in terms of the nuts and bolts, um, I don't have a ton of concern about where they're going uh, as a group in terms of uh, personnel. Uh, but yeah, but I, I mean, I still think that they're still, you know, they're, they're a few pieces away from, you know, having the, a competitive team. I think you would probably like to see a more veteran couple of guys come in to aid things and along with uh, the young guys that they do have. But, um, you know, I, I think that what's the ball is already rolling on a lot of the things that need fixing. Um, and I think the the step one is to make sure that they solidify that GM position um, with someone especially capable um, to do the job long-term and to basically set the vision for what this team is, because whatever it was under Pierre Dorian is not where it's going. I don't think so. Somebody else is going to have to reset that, I guess. Uh, My answer to this question is strangely similar to the question we got asked last week, Max, about the situation in New Jersey. And I think the answer is almost the identical is that in both cases of New Jersey and Ottawa, they are both teams that are in the top 10 in the NHL in goals per four per game, while also being in the bottom 10 in the NHL in goals against per game. I think you look at Ottawa and New Jersey and you put and you know, possibly other teams like Toronto, Edmonton, Minnesota, etc. And you all see these teams that are just saying, please, somebody stop a puck. Can somebody on this team just make a save a couple of times, a big save a couple of times per game? Um, the other team that's actually in that category of is, is Tampa Bay with being in the top 10 goal, goal scoring, bottom 10 goals against, but that they didn't have Andre Vasilevsky for a large stretch of the season. Uh, New Jersey and uh, Ottawa do not have a Vasilevsky waiting in the wings that they can just plug into their lineup for the rest of the season. Uh, you know, it, and I think you look at Matt Shogard in Ottawa and you wonder at what point do they, you know, look at him as an, as an option, as a promising young goalie. You never want to trust your season to a young goalie. Uh, Buffalo's are in that the hard way right now. Uh, but it, I, I think that's possibly what you have to do there is because I, I don't think Corpus and Forsberg are, have shown they can get it done right now. Yeah, I, I think goaltending is a big part of it, but I think it's just time. I, I think it's trending in the right direction. There, I just look at all the pieces here, and I just can't help but see the bones of a team that's going to be really good for a really long time. And uh, it, it comes with hiccups, but I, you know, would you love a little bit more out of you know a couple guys here or there? Sure, but I, I think it's just a matter of time, and it, it actually wouldn't shock me if they find themselves back in the playoff race by the end of this season. Goaltending being the biggest question to whether or not they can do it. Yeah, I do like this team. I think this isn't like, oh, they don't have blue liners, they don't have forwards. I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's a good team. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, I guess this one's a little bit related, uh, but we'll send it to you, Chris. Steve Bovin wants to know, what are the Habs missing? And I think you could probably take this in a couple different ways, but let's take it big picture in the in the, in the franchise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, boy, uh, where, do we, where do we start? Um this is another team where, you know, there are, there are pieces. I don't think they have the same, like Ottawa's has better pieces at this point, you know, like in terms of like guys like Stutzla, Sanderson, you know, the, 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 you know, there's, there's stuff there, but I think for, for Montreal, you know, solidifying the goaltending situation long-term having an answer. I think that the shadow of Carey Price continues to, you know, to, to be cast over this team. And and it's, what is the long-term solution and how do you find, you know, how do you find that player? Um, you know, we've been looking, there, there's, there's goaltending is a very difficult position. And it's so critical that if you don't have that solidified, it's really, really difficult. Just as Corey was talking about with Ottawa, that's a big, that's a big part of it. Um, you know, this is, a, this is another team. Like I, I, I feel like, Montreal completely lacks identity as, as a, as, as a team, as a, like, what is it? Where are they going? How is this going to work? Um, you know, you hope that guys like Slavkovsky continue to develop and, and that's going to be key. I think that they need more guys that are, that are kind of going to be part of that next wave of player. Um, you know, I think that we're starting to wonder, you know, is Martin St. Louis, the, the long-term answer as a coach for this team, there's a lot of great things that he's done. Uh, for the franchise, is it, you know, can they continue to progress? 
Um, you know, I, I think this is also a team that is going to, uh, they have good young defensemen. I still think that, and, and we'll see, maybe David Reinbacher is going to be that guy. Um, I'm less convinced of that, but you know, they need a, a number, like a true number one defenseman, like a, a like a lot. And, and, and that, like I said, it could be David Reinbacher. We need time. Like I love Caden Gooley. I like players that are, you know, that are really good players. Are they top tier defensemen on a team that's contending? And I don't see that for them. Um, I don't see that, you know, that it, Nick Suzuki or Cole Caulfield, who again, love both those players, have a lot of time for them. Are they top line players on a team that's contending? Less certain of that as well. Mm-hmm. So the top tier, like this is a team that has a lot of middle and and they need, and I'm not, I'm not calling the Canadians mid. So don't get, don't <laughs> all you kids out there. My son calls me mid all the time. Um, he's 11. Uh, he owns me. Um, but anyway, like, I, I really do think that there's, there's just a little too much low. Like it, there's just not enough top end there. And, and that's takes a long time to build. And when you have a number one pick, you hope that you added that. And and again, it's still very early in the Slavkovsky story. Um, but I just I don't see the guys that carry a franchise at this point. That's at and that's how how do you find that? Is the is the so thing. so all you're saying is all they need is a legit starting number one goalie, a number one defenseman, and a number one center. Number one center. Yeah, those th- those things are typically like because you look at it, you look at and like. Like we see Tampa and it's like, oh, well, you get Stamkos, you get Hedman, you get Vasilevsky, then you, you know, you have your Kucherov, your point, you know, like it's really hard to do. But yeah, and I, but I'm also saying that there are guys that could potentially grow into certain roles. It's just a matter of, will they be the, are they the elite of the league? It's, I don't see that. I think there was a point in time where I think there was a hope that Suzuki could be that. I mean, they gave yes. him a big contract. He's like, you know, get, you know, put that, you know, put the C on his on his uh, jersey. And it felt like in Montreal he was the answer because they've been searching for that legit number one center for as long as I can remember. Frankly, going back a long time, yeah. uh, and it kind of feels like is Suzuki going to be that, or is he going to kind of be like what Saku Koivu was to Montreal for a while, where he's like he's really good and you love the character, you love the. You love the competitiveness and he has offense, but he probably may not be like that true high echelon guy. Right. Yeah. But you know what? There, there was a lot of this too with Dylan Larkin, even when he was Suzuki's age and age 23, 24, you know, he was putting up 50 points a year and, and, and you know, 23 and 44 actually in the, in the COVID shortened year. Like I think we do forget sometimes when these teams are in the throes of a rebuild, just how much point wise some of the top guys can suffer when they're not surrounded kind of by, by what, you know, now Dylan Larkin is. And, and you see what the point totals are there. I'm not saying he's Dylan Larkin. They're different profiles of players, but I just think there is a little bit of rhyme in how we talk about, you know, the, these kind of players at that age when they're the, the, the guy on a rebuilding team. Sure. I mean, you know, when Montreal's good, you, you hope that on their top power play, you'll have Suzuki and Caulfield, but you probably won't have Mike Matheson running your, your first power play and you will probably have some more skill around yeah. him. Yeah, true. And I think that can elevate. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to be suddenly a 85, 90 point guy. But if he can be that 75, 80 point guy, I think you feel pretty good about that for, for Montreal. But, it, you know, to, to that point, you have to you have to do more, too. So, uh, all right. Uh, NHL in Atlanta wants to know, is this season or last season's Jason Robertson the real J-Rob? Corey? Very tough question, because I have found Jason Robertson for a long time to be a very tough evaluation. Just because you've seen the scoring over such a long period of time. He's very skilled. He's very intelligent with the puck. Obviously a, a highly talented player. But you know, over the time when I've watched him, especially in the NHL, you, he could be tough to love sometimes with, with the way he moves around the ice. He always like strikes you as the kind of guy who needs somebody else to get him the puck, even though that's obviously not the case. You don't put up 100 points in the NHL if you can't do some pretty special things by yourself, and, and he can. Um, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Like I think he's a great player. Uh, I don't like think he's ever going to be like a top 10, 20 overall player in the league, though, with just, with just how tough that skating stride is. 
I do wonder if we've seen his best season. Like I, 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 you know, which, you know, age 23 season is off a lot of guys, best season, you know, like, and, and, and if, if that is like, yeah, I mean, but I agree with, with Corey. And, and you also wonder too, is when you don't have pace, you know, he is such a smart player. He's poised. He does a lot of things well with the puck, um, makes a lot of great decisions, but the league, can find ways to make that harder for you. And I do feel like that's something that maybe is starting to happen a little bit more with him as they, as they make life a little more difficult to him by being, you know, on him harder and and on the puck quicker, um, which, you know, he's not going to win a lot of those one-on-one battles uh, when it comes down to skating and things like that. Wooly Mammoth wants to know, is Quinton Byfield finally living up to his second overall draft position, Chris? Well, you know, I think role is such an important thing and and the situation you get put in, you know, you obviously have to be ready for it when you get there. And I, I, to a certain extent, I feel like he's, you know, he's taken the ball and, and run with it um, here. And, you know, the question is about living up to the hype. And I, you know, I feel like that draft class in particular, you know, the expectation for Lafreniere and Byfield has been recalibrated a little bit, but I, I do think that the thing about Quentin Byfield that I always try to remember, especially now, is that he was always going to be a longer-term project. There were so many things, and I remember when he first got to the AHL, and remember, he went to the AHL a year earlier than you're usually supposed to as a junior hockey player. Two um, years earlier. Two years earlier, yes, exactly. So, you know, and that kind of like he had to find his way as a pro. It was not an easy transition for him. You know, there were a lot of habits that he had to be broken of and different things like that. Um, but, you know, is he living up to, he, he's playing better. There's no question. Is he living up to the hype of being a number two draft pick? I don't think that's, we've seen that yet. I still don't think we've seen the best of Quentin Byfield yet. Um, I think it, I think it's, it's coming in more of a way now that, you know, I believe that, that he still is progressing as a player. Um, but yeah, but I mean, to be the number two pick in that draft, you probably would want to see more at this point. Um, but I still believe that there's ceiling for him to reach. Um, and, and yes, what he is getting closer to, to that. Um, you know, interestingly enough though, like we probably expected him to be like the number two center behind Kopitar, you know, and not necessarily like a, you know, a part-time wing and different things that he's done this year. But, um, you know, I still have a lot of belief in the player. I like him. He's obviously on a good pace this year. Um, you know, but I still think that there's, we're, we're, you know, that book is not yet written on with him. Yeah. We'll see whether he keeps up this pace or not. Um, but the tools are undeniable. And at the end of the day, he is helping a contender win games. Yep. No question. Which is a great, a great place to be. And I, I mean, and still only 21 years old, you know, like it's, it's, he's still, I think once he gets to that 22, 23, 24 season, we may see the full Quinton Byfield effect by then. All right. Last one's for you, Corey, from Bruno Lauren, besides looking at the performances of a player at junior tournaments, such as the U18 or the U20, what is your process in evaluating the projectability of a player that plays limited minutes in men's league, such as Liga, SHL, or KHL? Uh, it really depends on each individual circumstance in terms of how limited those minutes are. I mean, if you're trying to watch a guy who plays four minutes a night and extrapolate much, good luck, I would say. Um, it's different if they're playing. And again, those leagues are different levels. At Liga is not the KHL. Uh, certain teams in the KHL are not like other ones. If you go play for you know Cunlan, that's not the same thing as playing for a locomotive or, or, or CSKA. So those are pretty distinct differences. So if you're, you know, getting regular ish ice time, like eight, 10, 12 minutes, and even maybe even an occasional power play thrown in there, you can learn a little bit more about the player that way. If you're not, uh, you watch the little you can just to get an idea of how the tools look, the skating in particular at that level, get an idea about his pro and NHL projection. Uh, but really when it comes to evaluating skill, hockey sense, competitiveness, I will probably go back and watch a video of his junior play at the club level of the prior season. You know, even when 
Like for example, with last season with the two locomotive kids and Simashev and Boot, who at times were playing junior, at times were playing very limited minutes in the KHL. Uh, I watched a lot of their 16-year-old video uh, to get an idea of how they look versus their peers. There were even some, you know, you know, quasi tournaments that they kind of played in with games like Belarus and stuff like that. That, that kind of helped me um, uh, get a better perspective of their of their skill. Uh, so that's typically my process. Now, if you're playing real minutes, like say how like an Anton Salaev or a Costa Hellenius is playing this year, that's very different. But when it's very limited minutes, outside of, you know, if you're not talking about the tournaments, I think you have to go back and watch previous uh, video to do that. I even do that for college players at times. Like when they, when they, when players jump to the college levels of draft eligible outside of a select few, it can be very difficult. Like, you know, so even I, you know, whether it's even like the very best, like old power, Ken Johnson, maybe a mid first, like Matt Wood, I know I would go back and watch how they looked in junior just because even for, you know, outside, like say Adam Fantilli and Celebrini, all of those guys are going to hit a wall in college at some point. And you want to see them in an environment where they have a little bit more success and, and time with the puck to assess their, their skill and their hockey sense. Awesome. Great stuff. That is going to do it for us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. You can catch more of Chris over at Flow Hockey and on his podcast, Talking Hockey Sense. You're also going to want to follow us on YouTube at youtube.com slash at the Athletic Hockey Show. And from right now through the end of the year, you can gift a one-year subscription to The Athletic for $19.99 or a two-year subscription for $39.99 when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. Give the gift of The Athletic this holiday season, and we'll talk to you soon.